Yeah. So it's gonna be like the next six months. I'm just gonna be like head down, work as much as I can. Oh, you only have half a year left. Hopefully. If you can. My current like I proposed to my committee graduate May 2024. Okay. Uh, May 2024. Well, that's a year. Oh wait, I guess we're no. It's November. I don't know what. what It's November, man. (laughs) This year has flown by. But um, I think that would be a kind of a good place to start if you're all right with that. Yeah. uh, To jump kind of into your background a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but ladies and gents, welcome back to Articulate with Steve McJones. Uh, this week we have one uh, Mr. Walker Gosrick. Hello, hello. Thank Mr. you so Grace much guys. for having me. Yeah, when the, <laughs> at when the whole sky is gray on Instagram. Yeah. I'm trying to blow up. Follow me. <laughs> it's just pictures of when the whole sky is gray. Yeah, but I also put a little, some poems in there, too. Oh, really? Yep. I haven't yep. seen any of those ones yet. Well, you just look at the captions, there's poems in there. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, I'll check those yeah, check out. Check it out. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, so you're actually, you right now are trying to get your PhD in... Robotics and artificial intelligence. Oh, wow. So this is your thing. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, and and I think that's sort of how I got on the whole, like, autonomous weapons systems thing. Sure. Is because I came in with, like, this idyllic vision of, like, oh, I'll be working on these robots that are going to be taking jobs that people don't want and don't care about, and then we're going to live in a utopia where our robots do the farming and we just, like, sit on our asses and get, like, beautiful food delivered to us. Yeah. And then I sort of got into the, you know, I got into the academia, like, the whole world. And soon realized that, like, most of the stuff that we do in, like, robotics academia is funded by the Department of Defense, by the military. And so even though academics, some very, very supportive of military aims, some not so much, when you're taking that money, the work that you're doing is still going to go towards the goals of the military. Sure, or of the company that is funding yeah capitalism yeah yeah capitalism (laughs) (laughs) but how did you uh, let's take it back just a step before Mm -hmm. we jump too far into it how did you decide that you wanted to even go into college for this was there when you were a kid did you (laughs) were you super into transformers or (laughs) i don't understand (laughs) yeah no it's a good question i think that i was just good at building things okay i just always liked it just like this you know i like, there's no happier place to me than, like, building Ikea furniture. Really? Like, that's... And so I, I went into college for... I love it, man. And I went into college for mechanical engineering for that reason. Like, I just love, like, building all just random devices to solve problems. Super fun. And then I just, you know, at least for me, I'm someone who was good at school as a okay. kid, yeah, you yeah. know? And I was always, I was like always getting this positive reinforcement from school, like, oh, wow, you're so good at school. You're so good at taking these tests. Yeah. And so I got into college, still good at taking tests. Sure. Awesome. Uh, and then I'm like, all right, well, shit, what's next? More school, you know? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. that's where, like, everyone was like, oh, man, you should be, like, a P- you should get your PhD, be a professor. Right. I was like, awesome. Yeah, I can definitely do that. Like, that aligns with my skill set. Sure. And so I sort of just kept, like, you know, moving on that sort of staircase of acad- academics, yeah. you know? I applied to grad school. I just I applied to, like, 25 places. I applied for all these fellowships because yeah. that's what they were, like, in college, you know? Colleges want to have a lot of fellowship recipients graduating. And so they, like, put us in this program. They're like, all right, for the next three years, we're going to tell you sort of, like, year by year, here's, like, the stuff you got to do to, like, get your resume to the point where by the time you graduate, you're a good candidate for these fellowships. Mm. And so that was, like, I did some cool stuff, like, with that, like, a lot of volunteer work that I probably wouldn't have otherwise done. But it was still, like, this process of almost always, like, just, like, you know, through years being taught, like, how to sculpt myself into the perfect candidate for these fellowships. Right. And so by the time I graduated, I was a good candidate for these fellowships. And, I, you know, I applied to a bunch, and I got a fellowship, and I got into grad school. And, yeah, so now I'm at Penn in my sixth year. And that was a whole process of like, all right, I got to like this next step in the academic ladder. What do I, what does that mean? What do I actually want to do with that? Like what impact am I having? What does my life, what does my work look like? And sort of just like realizing that the vision that I had in my head, like as a kid or as like a college student who was like, you know, super into academics Mm -hmm. was different than the reality of, right. of that of what you actually will do with academics yeah yeah it's interesting because you were so caught up 
in the idea of expanding your own intelligence and working on it in an academic way. Mm -hmm. And so what was the transition to, oh, what about artificial intelligence? You know what I mean? Oh, interesting. It's kind of a yeah through line there where, you know, it is still in a way academia and implanting ac academia within machines, I would yeah. say. Well, I feel like for me personally, I came at it from the perspective of I like building things. I'm okay. good at building things. It's fun to build things. Sure. And then I got into, you know, PhD work and realized that the research landscape was not about building things. Right. Like that is just not where things get published. That is not where people are making breakthroughs that are getting, you know, lots of like traction in the industry or in, like lots of citations in their papers. It's much more about algorithms about like writing code that controls things yeah because at this point in a like, way that's still building right building code for sure for sure yeah. and that was like a different experience for me because it is a it's different building like <laughs> like building a machine versus building an electrical system versus building like a computer like building a a, a you know system in code like building, you know, like a, a game or a, a, a physics engine that games use to run or building an algorithm for a robot. That's still building something, but it's almost like increasing levels of abstraction. Yeah. And as you, like, increase that level of abstraction, it becomes slightly – it feels different yeah. from built. Like, well, and that's what I was wondering is it was it didn't fulfill that uh, that little – uh, Ikea building furniture. No, it, like a little bit. Like a, it, it, it scratches that itch a tiny bit, but yeah. it, it leaves a lot to be desired because yeah. in the end, I'm not using my hands. Right. I'm not like, you know, getting down on my knees and like getting greasy and shit. Yeah. I'm now it's sitting on my ass for like 10 hours straight and right. just like trying to focus on like staring at a computer screen, you yeah. know, which like it can be really satisfying to do that and like build something and it works. But it's it's definitely a different feeling. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So so how did you get into the AI field and, and develop that part of your uh, knowledge? Yeah. So that was primarily because that's where the research in robotics is happening right now. Oh, just in general. Yeah. Okay. It's like, you know, there is a lot of work, you know around like building new types of robots and that's kind of what my lab does i'm in the mod lab we build modular robots which mm -hmm. means a ton of little modules little parts that independently aren't that like capable of doing anything but can connect together and can reconfigure to do sort of a ton of different types of things yeah um but that and other sort of parts of the field like it are just every single part of the field is being you know there's a little bit of ai in it mm. and then the ai part of the field is the fastest growing part and so i sort of realized that in my first couple of years and realized that you know professors for sure are like holding us back a little bit because they're like no no, no that's not how we do it mm. no ai research makes a lot of people who have been in the field for a long time uncomfortable really because it feels a little bit less like science. Yeah. And the reason is that like you take these super complex systems that have been so so artificial intelligence. Can I can I do like a little yeah, little definition? Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what the long form podcast is great for. You yeah. Can do, we could do anything. Yeah, all right. All right. <laughs> um so artificial intelligence generally 99% of the time people are talking about it refers to machine learning. Typically refers to a subset of machine learning called deep learning. Okay. And deep learning is uh, neural networks. Um, and so you might have heard this term. Neural networks are based on, like, the original idea was like, oh, we can make things like how neurons connect in a human or animal brain. Okay. Right? And so there's all of these sort of neurons, artificial neurons, mm. that are you know, initialized to sort of randomly connect to one another and randomly, like, influence one another. Right. And then through throwing a shit ton of data at it, right. you train it to respond in a certain way, okay. similar to how you, like, train an animal to, you know, to, to you know, train a dog to sit or, like, to, to fetch or something. It's like you, you give it rewards and, and you tell it, okay, that was good, that was bad, and eventually it learns to connect things, uh... Uh, in a way that, um, in a way that is giving you the result that you've trained well, it to get, and so it can learn good and bad. How do you give a robot a reward? So it's all numbers, okay. right? So like, I'll say that like, uh, so so maybe the simplest example is like uh, image recognition. Mm -hmm. And so what you'll do Which is, is you'll. Big. 
yeah on the autonomous weapons oh generally it's just one of the technologies that i think is going to be because it's really getting impactful. a robot to see like a human exactly yeah yeah and but in a different way than a human in a way that's a little it's it's alien a little sure. bit <laughs> right it's like it's able to discern faces instantly and yeah. like like you can use facial recognition to tell someone's pulse just from the changing colors of their skin. That's crazy. Like, it can do shit differently than so, people. Yeah, so what's the example? So with facial recognition, or sorry, not with facial recognition, but with image recognition generally, right. like you want to train a neural network, a machine learning algorithm to recognize, okay, is this a, co- a cat or is this a dog? Mm. And so what you do is you feed it a ton of examples. And you have this specific like set of, of you know, of uh, math operations that you are feeding this image raw data into and then out at the end it spits out a one for a cat or a zero for a dog Mm. and what you tell it is basically all right i want you to match the labeled images that i have so i have one for dog zero for cat for like ten thousand images and i need you to go and figure out which set of like weights which set of specific like math operations results in you getting the highest accuracy on this training data set that I have. Okay. And so you end up with this fine-tuned, you know, very complex, often it can be like megabytes or gigabytes of just binary like that's 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 the that's the representation of these set of math operations is a megabyte or a a gigabyte um that you feed an image through and then it spits out one for for dog and zero for cat. Okay. And what's sort of scary to that about people who have been in this field for a long time is before what we would do is we're like, all right, first we're going to, you know, use this piece of code to extract the edges of objects in the image. And then we're going to, like, see if we can represent some, you know, the shape of a cat or the shape of a dog by, like, these specific math operations. And you're, like, very much deductively going through and being like, all right, using this piece of logic, we can figure out this part. Mm -hmm. And then, like, so you understand every step of the process. Right. But with artificial intelligence in all of its applications, it's kind of like you hear people refer to it as a black box, Mm. which means that we fed in all this data. Mm -hmm. We got it to perform better than any other algorithm that we've ever created has been able to do at recognizing cat versus dog or Mm. recognizing faces. But we don't know how it's doing. We don't know how it's doing it. That's interesting. Like we have general ideas. We can make some mathematical proofs about like – we think this has 98% accuracy under these conditions. Mm. But those are, number one, hard to do, and number two, super conservative. Yeah. So we end up with the system that's really effective but really hard to gauge where it fails, where it succeeds. Uh, yeah. And, like, so it just has this aspect of unpredictability. Just for my sake of mind, how did you, uh, again, I, I wanted to, how, how did you, like, reward the system for being more accurate? So... This might be a little technical, but Mm -hmm. in machine learning, there's something typically called a loss function or a reward function Mm. that you use. And it is a function of the output. Uh, And it can be – you can do it a couple different ways. There's something called like imitation learning where you basically train your system to imitate an expert. Mm. And that's kind of what I was talking about with like this labeled data set that's that's right. similar to that. Sure. Um, and that is like, all right, you get a reward for how close your answer is mm. to the output of this expert. Okay. And so in my research, I'm teaching teams of robots to like better coordinate uh, in like, you know, examples like, you know, maybe we want to like have a team of robots like cover an area so that they can like spread pesticide or something on, yeah. a, on an agricultural field. What I do is I have this expert algorithm that I've kind of hand designed that has more information than the system could ever do. And I'm like, all right, these are the actions that my expert would take under in a specific circumstance. And then I train the model. The reward is like, how close are you to my expert actions? Mm-hmm. So the actions can be like the, the, the output of the machine learning system can be really complicated, like a set of robot actions for a whole team. Or it can be simple, like a one and a zero for a cat versus a dog. Right. But either way, what you're doing is saying, all right, you are rewarded for how close you are to the expert example. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting because then in that sense, the idea of a reward, mm-hmm. I feel like within a, a living being, is a, it's an emotional response. You, you get a reward and you're happy about yeah. it. Whereas in a, a robot or a, a machine, you're like, 
you do, this is this is correct like the one you know the one is like yeah. you did the right thing and yeah. it just inputs that as more data <laughs> yeah yeah it, well, and so there's another type of machine learning. So I, I talked about imitation learning mm-hmm. uh, of an expert. There's another type called reinforcement learning, mm-hmm. which is much more similar to how we like – maybe you, – you can say that it's more similar to how people and animals learn. Okay. Because instead of tr- saying, okay, you get more reward for how close you are to an expert, mm-hmm. you're saying, all right, I'm defining some abstract like reward that you get for a behavior. Mm-hmm. The reward might be – like, you know, one example is like, say you want a robot arm to grab something. Mm-hmm. The reward could be like how close you got that thing to a specific point or how successful you were in grabbing it or how stable your grasp is. Like you can define all these different sorts of rewards. Mm. Um, and then basically you're sort of letting the system free to explore like the space of things it can do. Mm. And it's just going to figure out what the sort of series of actions or types of policies are that yeah. give it the best reward. So in a sense, then it has a lot more free will using that black box. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is really... Really, it's both really interesting and, and really scary, and I also it, think the fear is overhyped too. Oh, uh, well, uh, this is coming back to where researchers are a yeah. little nervous about um, giving the autonomy autonomy. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I wanna I wanna be very clear yeah. that researchers are not worried about creating an intelligent like machine that destroys humanity. Sure, sure. Like there are some for sure, yeah. but far and away like robotics researchers who work on this stuff like day to day, this stuff works so bad. Mm. It is so hard <laughs> to get an artificial intelligence system to do what you want it to do. Okay. Or to do anything at all, really. Yeah. Um that I the 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 idea of creating a terminator accidentally yeah, yeah. to me and to many in my field is just ridiculous. Yeah. It's 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 hard not to talk about it though. Yeah. I feel like the terminator fallacy comes up quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, when doing any research for this and the little research that I did mm-hmm. do it cuz mm-hmm. everybody's like yeah, but what about Skynet though? Yeah. <laughs> and then everyone's like shut up. <laughs> Would you not? <laughs> You're not helping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, cuz it cuz it does like and okay, getting back to like this reinforcement learning thing, mm-hmm. there's like little aspects of this that like sort of get at our fears of like Skynet because mm-hmm. it's a black box. Mm-hmm. Like for example, you might tell a robot, "All right, in this simulation, you're you're going to need to learn to walk." Your reinforcement the the reinforcement reward that I'm giving you is how fast can you move forward? And Typically, if you don't design your simulator really, really well, your system will find some flaw in your simulator, like the physics engine. Like, oh, I can force my leg slightly below the surface and then I'll sort of explode this way. Right. You know, and so it'll find like these exploits and these weird little tricks, which is like, honestly, that's anytime you're working with computer systems, it's gonna like find the way to break what you've done, Mm. you know? (laughs) But like artificial intelligence, very good at it. And that's something that like gets at this fear of like, oh, it's out of control, but, and it's gonna do stuff that we don't want to because like that's not what we wanted to do right we wanted to learn like a normal walking gait that's like effective and instead it's like exploding itself from the floor like launching itself forward right but these errors are not useful right and they're not doing anything effectual because they're happening in this like made-up simulator world yeah and so that i think is sort of where some of the fears of like skynet come in but also where we can dispel them is this shit might make sense in our crazy simulator world that does not represent the real world, okay. but it is just so hard to translate anything into the real world, and it is just so hard to get anything to do anything effectively right. in the real world. So people take the unpredictability of the action that an AI will take and say, oh, that's unpredictable because they have a different intent of how they want to use the information and data that we gave them, mm-hmm. when in reality it's just like, it's just completely random, and it, there's no intent. They're just, like, doing it. Exactly. Okay. I think that's a really good way to think about it. People see this, like, oh, it's doing something I didn't expect as it being really smart. Yeah. It's being really dumb. Yeah. <laughs> it's the opposite. Yeah. I mean, so you're still re- researching it and building your own mm-hmm. uh, code and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so then from just the AI field, how did you dive into the um, rabbit hole of AI autonomous weapon weaponry? Yeah, so I think that started for me, uh, you know, as I sort of came to this realization that academia was not this place of pure, you know, exploration of basic science, Mm -hmm. that I had 
I, you know, very naively and very idyllic sort of vision of it yeah. uh, from like when I was in undergrad. Right. Wow, you can you can explore anything. Like yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, academics up in their ivory tower. They're not influenced by anything. Right. They just and and uh, some of that comes from. You know, people who are working on this stuff don't really, a lot of times, don't really want to be working on military technology. Mm. And so they'll write in their papers, like, and I've done this too, my funding for this research that I was talking about with swarms of robots that are, like, you know, covering a field or covering, like, you could use these systems to, like, spread out over a forest fire to monitor how it's spreading, right? Mm -hmm. Because I don't particularly support the military applications of my research, I'm going to write about those applications. Mm. But just as valid are military applications, and my funding is coming from the Army right now. Mm. I'm funded by the Army on this project. They're funding me because they're interested in the military applications. Mm -hmm. If anything, the military applications are going to be, you know, first of all, they're going to happen first because the Army's funding it. The Army has an interest, and the Army has, you know, more than half of the research dollars that are spent in this country come from the DOD. Don't quote me on that fact, but <laughs> but at least a half of robotics research is, is funded by the DOD. Right. And so these military applications, even though scholars tend to talk about agriculture, about environmental monitoring, about, you know, search and rescue, mm -hmm. I think a real, like, turning point for me on my view of, like, the military's impact on academia was when I was working on a search and rescue algorithm mm. and I was reading this paper and it was using the exact same mathematical formulation because really when we're writing a paper what boils what it boils down to is what new math you're introducing into the you know into the field True. my exact same mathematical formulation that I was using for search and rescue they were using for search and destroy Oh, wow. Mathematically identical. Yeah. And that's like, that's dual use, right? right? That is the idea that you can use both, is the same technology for both civilian and military. And that is an inescapable fact of technology. Yeah. But it's also like, I don't know. To me, that was a really challenging moment because mm -hmm. I was like, I don't have control over the shit that I make. Yeah. Like, I don't have control over Some how people use order. it. Yeah. Exactly. I don't have control over how people think about it, you, you know. Property, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, that's that that was sort of one of my inflection points of realizing that yeah, scientists aren't as separated from the funding source as they like to think that they are. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's scary because you know, you need the funding to be able to explore the things that you want to explore to have this this ivory tower of academia. Yeah. As you said, it's like we need the money to be able to do that because um, it is very uh, metaphysical and, you know, a lot of times hypothetical and theoretical. And the actual application boils down, you know, after some, after the funding has kicked in yeah. and we've been able to test these theories and been able to test the algorithms multiple times yeah. to the point where the accuracy is to, uh, you know, 98, 99% mm -hmm. of the time, right? Yeah, and it's like where, in, in what portion of application are you going to have the funding to really take this from the initial state to this state of deployment it's in the sectors that have the most money and that tends to be the military right. there are of course you know plenty of good applications and i also don't want to like generally shit talk the robotics community because there is still so much important i think that we still have a fundamental need to explore basic mm -hmm. science like i really like fundamentally like support the the exploration of basic science. Yeah. It's just that I think that we as a community of academics, as a community generally, as as like I don't think the US reckons with the fact that most of our research dollars are towards this military aspect. Right. And towards this just increased militarization of, you know, of science, of technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's the uh, it's like the benefits of AI and technology versus the you know the deficits of, of AI and technology. Like, I actually had a guy, uh, one of my best friends from Ohio, Chris Beckman. He is just uh, he he was a robotics major and mm -hmm. went to like a career school for that. And you know, he 
worked with these robots that literally could detect a car and then sh paint it like automatically you know shoot it with a gun and That's paint it. it yeah and immediately the car was painted ready to ship off to the next part of yeah. the process so it's like there are really cool applications for things like this yeah but like you said 50 percent of the funding goes into military aspects. Yeah. And yeah. that is unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, depending on your perspective, yeah, that's really unfortunate. I I am kind of a pacifist. I'm kind of a leftist. Exactly. And so to me, I really don't like seeing technology applied to kill people. Right. You know? But that being said, that's a certain portion. Of, we're, we are a certain portion of the world. So mm -hmm. when you're thinking about the application of the military aspects of this technology, you do have to consider that we're not everybody. You know what I mean? We don't yeah. think like everybody. So, you know, in the case of the easiest example being China. Yeah. Right. So China, you know, the people at the top uh, of the government and technology sector, well, they're in control of all of the sectors because you know the government that yeah. china is yep yep ccp's got a lot of power over yeah. there <laughs> they are oh god we're gonna get killed aren't we? <laughs> i dare not call it total power but. yeah right right but but in general they can say uh hey we're gonna look past the um you know philosophical and emotional and moral obligations and just make it just make the technology just, uh -huh. And then we'll figure it out from there. But they are already just like piling in. And I'm sure they probably, you know, I'm probably giving them a little bit more credit than maybe. I, I don't know what, what's going on in China, if I'm being honest. Yeah. No, I don't either. They're very capable scientists, though. But that's I the can thing. tell They're you that. They're very much. capable. Yes. Right. So when considering like our moral obligations mm -hmm. is to uh, kind of. What, what the other side is stating and what I've learned again, and you can correct me anywhere that you want, but it, it sounds like what's going on in the military right now is, okay, we understand that there are uh, moral obligations that we should be tied to. Mm -hmm. But as for right now, nobody is keeping anybody like uh, under any strict regulation with these things. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be able to keep up with uh, potential enemies. Yeah. So that way, if they get to a place that we can match them at that place, yep. and then we can talk about, you know, mutually assured destruction. Or yeah. Something like that. Yeah, no, I think that's kind of the exact right assessment of it. Like, I think military applications of technology are going to grow to fill the space that they are allowed. Mm. And I mean that in terms of, like, what we as a global society establish as the rules and norms of what you're allowed to do in war, mm -hmm. we will figure out how to do, uh, like, to the greatest extent. And then, of course, even beyond that, because people do commit war crimes, and the U.S. has, of course, committed war crimes. Sure. Um, and, like, I feel like with, like, nuclear weapons is, of course, a great example of that, like, the most recent and looming largest example, because that is where we had to put a cap on this stuff right? or else we were going to blow the whole planet up, yeah. you know? Yeah. And like AI weapons are definitely a different character mm. of threat. But my sort of overarching view is that we need to put a cap on that as well. Right. Because the future implications of artificial intelligence powered weapons mm -hmm. are maybe not as scary to our you know, existence as a planet, mm -hmm. but I think almost equally threatening to our existence as a species. Really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, so. do you think it would take a, a large example like a Hiroshima or like that, something that uh, uh, realistic to the human like population yeah. to understand how intense these AI machines are? I'm scared that it will. Yeah. That, I think, is one of my biggest fears around this stuff. And I, I came to you when we were talking about doing this podcast with the question that I get when I talk about, you know, developing autonomous weapon systems with my colleagues, mm -hmm. which is, if we don't, then they will. Right. Which is a really valid argument. Mm. And I've struggled over and over again to articulate a good answer to that argument. And I think the best sort of counter-argument... I have to do this every time somebody says articulate on articulate. Oh, shit. Whoa, <laughs> Whoa. he said it. He got it. 
<laughs> wow. Okay. I didn't even think of it. No, no, it's perfect. Oh, <laughs> wait, if I say that over and over again, are you going to have to keep popping them, or is it one per episode? I had, this is the first time I've ever done it, so we're going <laughs> to we're gonna roll with it and see how it goes. All right, all right. I didn't mean to cut you off there <laughs> while we're talking about... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> global, <laughs> global terror. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think, I think the best uh, sort of comeback I have to that is... If if we all think that way, mm. and if we sort of go down this game theory path of we have to outcompete other you know nation states in order to make sure that we maintain military supremacy, mm. then we will escalate until we get to that point of a horrible horrible thing happening, right. like Hiroshima, mm-hmm. and then we're gonna hopefully backpedal and be like, oh shit. Yeah. We have unleashed a power that we cannot have on the battlefield mm-hmm. if we are going to maintain certain standards for, you know, human rights, for global stability. Are there theories or do you have a theory of what that event might be? Yeah, there are a lot of different ideas, but I think the there's, there's a couple things about um, autonomous weapon systems that are you know, different from, you know, the prior types of weapons that we've had to come together as a global order to sort of, like, put some some guardrails around. Mm-hmm. So nuclear weapons, of course, blunt force. Mm. Just absolutely just massive explosion obliterates everything. Right. Similar with chemical and biological weapons. Maybe you can argue that, like, with some certain types of biological weapons, you can target them better. Mm-hmm. But all the same, very, very scary. We came together, and I think biological weapons is actually an example that I look to as, uh, you know, maybe something that we can draw inspiration from for autonomous weapon systems because it seems like the scientific scientific community globally did a really good job of sort of self-regulating and being like, if you work on biological weapons, we will shun you from the science community. Wow. Um, and I, I'm not totally up to speed on, like, you know, international human rights law and everything that, with, with that relating to biological weapons. Of course, they are, you know, illegal to use. It's a war crime. I'm not sure if that was Geneva Convention or whatever. Mm -hmm. But we came together and came up with some overall guardrails that we now use to make sure that we aren't using biological weapons. And so far, that has been relatively successful. Mm -hmm. I think one of the differences with autonomous weapon systems is that, you know, we talk a lot of times in, you know, robotics and technology about democratization of technology. Mm-hmm. And that means making technology more accessible, making it more cheap to build, and making it easier to build systems. Mm, mass producible. Mass producible and by people in, you know, poorer circumstances, you know, right. and, and like, you know, a lot of the like idyllic world of, of robotics communication wants to be like, all right, we'll democratize robotics. We'll have, you know, people in third world countries like automating the building of their homes and, you know, we'll do this to decrease housing prices and all this stuff, right? Democratization is a double-edged sword because it also applies to autonomous weapon systems. Right. And I think right now we have a situation where all of the pieces of technology to build a really scary weapon for pretty cheap with relatively little technical expertise, all those pieces are out there and they're almost just waiting for someone to put them together. Proliferation. And... Yeah, and I mean, that's already happening to a certain extent by some large governments. Like, right. Israel is building a lot of autonomous weapon systems. The U.S. is. Um, but there's also the risk that a terrorist organization can build mm. a large-scale autonomous weapon system. Right. Um, and so I think to paint a picture of that, um, I'll use the same example that um, I think it was the Future of Humanity Institute maybe five or six years ago put out this video called killer robots or something like that slaughterbots slaughterbots yeah you watched it okay awesome Mm -hmm. so uh that i think is such a great example of the the risk that we have here so slaughterbots this video that they put out was like a fake tech pitch from like this tech guy Mm -hmm. and he was like here's this new weapons technology that we've invented and now it's for sale Mm -hmm. and the weapons technology is all of these tiny drones equipped with cameras that can do facial recognition and equipped with a tiny amount of explosive and the idea 
idea all is that the technology we have. Yes, all of these individual components that we have. We have very powerful facial recognition. We can fit it on a tiny chip. We have tiny, tiny cameras. Mm. We have drones that are getting more and more capable. And we do have drones like my lab actually is building like the world's smallest like flying flying self-powered robot right now. It's this big. Wow. And so we're not to the scale that they were where they were like, I don't know, these tiny, tiny robots or like um or sorry, for the podcast, this big being like, you know, a couple centimeters across. Right, right, right. Um I'm glad you cut that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um and so and I think there was a Black Mirror episode, maybe like season two or three, where they had like these little bee robots that would do the same thing. They yeah. would like blow up. Right. Um, yeah, and so we have all this technology, and now we're almost just waiting for someone to put this together. Right. Like, I can tell you that within, you know, like, there's a good robotics lab at Penn, but if you got all these people together and gave them a few months, like, yeah, they could build that. Mm. You know, and it's like, so we're kind of just waiting for something like this to be built or deployed. I think right now it's just not economically feasible. There are other cheaper weapon systems that people can use more effectively. Mm-hmm. But this stuff is getting cheaper and cheaper every year, and it's getting more and more effective every year and it's right. getting smaller and smaller every year too and so like that i think is the thing that i fear being like this you know big inflation. and that's point. like you know kind of accidental proliferation right mm-hmm. but there's also the idea of like deliberate proliferation where mm-hmm. a government says oh we can't use this technology because we're limited by you know humanitarian uh obligations or whatever yeah. but what if you know they you know this small uh, little terrorist group over here that is somehow on our side what if yeah. they got their hands on it yeah thing, you yeah. know what i mean yeah and then in that sense the terrorist organization can run with it they also at that moment have the technology so they can replicate it and mm-hmm. sell it themselves for more money mm-hmm. things like that yeah um yeah. so you're thinking that we're really just waiting for the, the ball to drop that's currently what it feels like. Mm. Um, and also, you know, because of the democratization aspect, it's also harder to, like, with nuclear weapons, you can look for, you know, uranium, uh, what's the word, refinement? What, what's the word where they, they make the re- uranium more concentrated at the radioactive isotopes? Uranium concentration. You're yeah. the smart one between <laughs> us, by the way. <laughs> um, these these facilities, like they need like specific materials. Like this was the whole thing when we were invading uh, Iraq, right? Was mm-hmm. Bush was like, oh, they got these types of tubes that they only use for this type of. Turns out he was wrong, but mm-hmm. there are these technologies that you specifically need to manufacture nuclear weapons that are relatively easy to detect that have to exist in large facilities. Similarly with chemical or biological weapons, a lot of times these things have to be constructed in these like big like established labs with expensive equipment that comes from specific suppliers. And so there are all these mechanisms to track these supply chains Mm. and to identify when there's a risk that this stuff could be happening. Mm -hmm. With autonomous weapon systems, like I worry that we won't have those systems in place because nothing individually of, you know, these Uh, is particularly challenging to obtain or is particularly easy to detect. Mm. And so you could have potentially like a bunch of people like, you know, sitting in their houses, you know, assembling these tiny drones that can blow up and and kill someone. And we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to uh, detect it. Mm. So, I mean, currently, just because of resource intensive sort of aspects, I think that the bigger threat that we're facing right now is powerful nations using these technologies to suppress you know people Mm -hmm. um but i think that that is another fear and maybe a more motivating fear for people who are less politically on the left Mm -hmm. because i think as a nation we can all agree we don't want terrorists to have weapons of mass destruction especially weapons of mass destruction that can be individually targeted to specific people or to specific types of people yeah profiles of people like Mm -hmm. that's a very very scary thing for everyone and i think having Many people would want that technology in the hands of our government. Mm-hmm. I think we can all agree that we don't want that technology want in, in every government. I don't either. <laughs> but but I think there's a there's room for disagreement on that across right, right. this political spectrum. Sure. I think we can all agree we don't want terrorists to have this. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah, no, I, I think that aspect of, you know, this dual use technology that is is poised for, you know, its sort of introduction into you know mainstream being a tool of combat yeah yeah and there's just not much out there right now in terms of good definitions for what Mm -hmm. autonomous weapon systems are in terms of regulation on an international stage and 
it's a little scary to me because I think it will take something like, you know, Geneva Convention level right. to get to that point of coming up with a good definition and a good global agreement of what what parameters we want to put around autonomous weapons mm-hmm. systems, you know. And so what does that look like for you? So in terms of like parameters, like what would? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a ton of different ideas out here, and I think it's a relatively nascent, like, uh, you know, field of study. So lots of different ideas that are changing quickly. Um, but a lot of them center around uh, having a human agent in the loop. Right, in the loop. So this is like a big part of autonomy, um, keeping a, per- a person, you know, the black box is somebody, you know, leaving an, uh, a weapon completely mm-hmm. on its own to make any decision, mm-hmm. completely out of the loop. There are no humans involved. Yeah. Um, completely in the loop is a person controlling it remotely. Yeah. And then there's that middle ground of somebody keeping them on the loop. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Of, of, yeah. Human in the loop, we call it, um, which is basically like you have this system. Maybe it's autonomously navigating. Maybe it's autonomously selecting targets. Mm-hmm. But you have a person who is looking through a screen and being like, all right, you have the go ahead to hit that target. Right. Um, and I think that is where a lot of people are more comfortable drawing the line. Right. Just because, and, and the way I think of it is that this inherently limits the scalability of these weapons. Right. And the scalability is what makes these things really terrifying. Because mm-hmm. if you don't have a human in the loop, these things can scale as much as you can buy them, right? right? And then you can have like a million drones going out in parallel and just boom, you know, blowing people up. If you have humans in the loop, you have a small limitation of scale and you have a little bit more certainty that your target is accurately selected that mm-hmm. you are target targeting a military target rather than a, a civilian, civilian target correct. yeah the military's argument to this is mm-hmm. that these robots are going to make decisions quicker than a human can so and more accurately there's a human on the even a human on the loop yeah they still are saying okay but these they're still fallible you know yeah I mean? yeah the, the robots are going to be able to make yeah these decisions quicker faster the, what we need them to do they're gonna yeah. make the decisions the way we want them to as opposed to yeah still having a person on the loop so that's where the line is yeah yeah and it's a really tough thing to navigate and i think that same argument of well but the robot's going to make decisions more quickly and more accurately and with less bias than human actors those because like the ideal situation is that oh no a robot isn't racist mm-hmm. so a robot won't see you know a darker shade of skin on someone and assume that they're an enemy combatant when they might be a civilian you know right. or something like that or but their facial recognition might be a little worse on a person with darker skin is what i've heard exactly and that's yeah. the point that i wanted to make is that we um you know we first of all consider these machines to be infallible because they're like Oh, it's a robot system. Of course it's right. There's it's no a computer. Right. You know? Yeah, it doesn't have our human biases. Yeah. The way that artificial intelligence is trained is built on human decisions. Right. It's and built I, on imitating historical data and the way that humans make decisions. Which so, is <laughs> Yeah, it's biased. Bias. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so they inherit these same biases and they do tend to do better than an individual human. They do tend to be a little bit less biased than the more biased people who are making decisions. And this applies all across the the, where autonomy is used. This applies to self-driving cars. This applies to artificial intelligence algorithms that are being used to decide who gets a bank loan and what the rates are, you know. And also it it applies to facial recognition and targeting of autonomous weapon systems. You know, we we like to think that and, and oftentimes these things are slightly less biased than humans. Mm. But my sort of concern there is that, yes, they are less biased, but they are being automated. They're being made so much faster and they're being scaled up so much larger that the biases on a, a proportional level might be smaller, mm-hmm. but on an absolute level, because now right. we're scaling so high, yeah. these biases might result in worse Uh, outcomes Mm -hmm. overall for a particular group and because these biases are so consistent Mm -hmm. then and and because also we trust technology to be less biased Mm -hmm. it becomes almost like you know it just cements the biases that are already in place it's It's a really solid knowing like if it's consistently like a two percent 
incorrect. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we can sacrifice 2% of something. He's like making that decision. (laughs) Yeah, you just like, whereas, you know, one person who's approving loans could only discriminate against six people a day. Mm -hmm. An AI that's discriminating at a far lower rate can discriminate against six million people in a single day. You know, it's like, that's, that's, I think... And when we apply systems at this scale, I think we there's like some game theoretic aspects, like some some like, okay, how does this actually affect the system? How does it affect, you know, how the AI works mm. when it is applied at such a scale that it actually is affecting the world that's its inputs, you know? Right. Um, there's all these things that we, I think, are not really prepared to reckon with at that scale. Mm. And I think that we are moving forward too quickly towards applying things at such a large scale that mm. we're not going to be able to reckon with these, you know, secondary outcomes that that uh, that we just can't predict yet. Right. So your suggestion is almost just to slow things down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, especially, I think that's a harder argument to make with, like, you know, generative AI and, like, uh, you know, chat GPT. Like, I kind of do think that we should slow down with that stuff yeah. until we have, you know, systems that we can put, like, an accurate sort of, like, oh, we know that it's going to perform well within these parameters in this type of application. Right. Like, I want to see a chat GPT that's like, all right, here's chat GPT for, like, you know, for like your school essays, but there's uh, a different chat GPT for like lawyers and there's a different chat GPT for like doctors. Cause I, you know, I think we, we, the, the, there was that lawyer who used chat GPT to try to like write, uh, you know, some, some document for, for his case. And it was like citing all of these fake, uh, uh decisions, yeah. right? Yeah. Cause chat GPT is, you know, designed to produce answers that look real, right. but it's all, it can be bullshit, it right? It can be, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so I would want to see stuff like that slowed down a little bit till we can make confident statements about where it's going to work well and mm-hmm. how it's going to work in certain circumstances. Yeah. Um, but I think that argument's a little bit harder to make with ChatGPT because the harms are less tangible. Yeah, well, and, and that's what I'm saying is I, I think that side of things, like, they're not military based you know what mm-hmm. i mean so it's like that sort of thing is like i, I don't know i kind of wanted to speed those up so that way i don't know yeah <laughs> like, i mean yeah. those aren't the things that i'm concerned about being quick like right you know those are the types of things that could make you know my life easier yeah. you know you know having a chat gpt that's smarter and more accurate yeah um, and yeah things like that um, but I do understand that, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that, I, that yeah. could be dangerous. Me running with a with an AI. I don't know if that's a right. safe for anybody out here. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, we could talk for a while about the benefits and downsides of slowing down True. things like ChatGPT. Right. But I think for autonomous weapon systems, to me at least, it's a little bit more of a straightforward argument that we should slow down because the cost of fucking up is so high. Right. It's human lives on the line. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and it is. It is changing global power dynamics in a way that, to my view, exclusively supports those who currently have power. Mm. Because it is those who have power who are at the cutting edge of developing autonomous weapon systems technologies, and they're going to be the first to deploy it as well. Mm-hmm. And even if terrorist regimes start figuring out how to use this stuff, the scale is just going to be a lot less than you know global powers are able to deploy. Yeah. Common counter argument that I've heard against slowing down, you know, towards marching forward and developing autonomous weapons, which is really compelling. Um, so we put a panel together to talk about autonomous weapon systems, and we invited a bunch of academics. We invited a bunch of military people and like ethicists, lawyers, stuff mm-hmm. to give different perspectives on this. And one really powerful perspective came from. Uh, a roboticist, an academic called, uh, her name's Rujana Baichi. And she um, she actually is the founder of the robotics lab at Penn that I'm a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is also, she is a World War II a Holocaust survivor. I think she was born in Slovenia. Um, it wasn't called Slovenia at the time. It was a Soviet state. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was born in Slovenia and she was a, uh, born to a Jewish family and, you know, made it out of the Holocaust in a Red Cross camp, but most of her immediate family died. And so she saw, like, she came up with this horrendous war, you know, just seeing horrible things, seeing the capability of human destruction, right? Mm -hmm. And so she was telling us that that suffering is just something that she never wants to see. And she 
if if we can build a robot system that will fight a robot system so that people don't have to fight people and do those horrible things to one another, yeah. we should do that. And we should be translating to this, you know, different, you know, battlefield of like robot battle. Right. right? So instead of like facial recognition on humans, how about robot recognition, uh, like enemy robot recognition, yeah. things like that. That's kind of what I had um like the ideal future of what I personally mm -hmm. saw is, um, you know, the idea that we have a bunch of instead of like, you know, douchebags in the military out with guns running yeah. around. And not to say that all military people are douchebags, but there are douchebags. Happy Veterans Day, everyone. But, you know, having a, a nerd behind a, a screen. Yeah. Control over a battlefield with uh, a, just robot, like, you know, like. Uh, large scale Bakugan or mm -hmm. something like that. You know what I mean? Large scale uh, ripsticks. You know these little uh, things that we are basically just. How much money and power can we be put behind technology and keep it in the technology realm as opposed to the human realm? Yeah. Like we can have battles and wars, and in a, in a sense, it's almost like a a financial war that we're having mm -hmm. against another country. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yep, and, yep. and and in in that sense, that feels a little bit while still scary because it can economically mm -hmm. shake things up in our country. Mm -hmm. You know that it just feels more safe than risking these human lives. Yeah. Yeah. I. And, and yeah, and I think that is a very valid counter argument to slowing down on autonomous weapon systems development. I think the way that I view it is that number one, we're not 100% sure that we're going to reach that future mm. of robots fighting robots. Yeah. And number two, the path to get to that future will first involve robots fighting humans. Uh, it's a certainty. Uh, yeah, without yeah. a doubt. Without a doubt. And yeah. that is horrifying to right. me because you will have such asymmetry in mm. warfare. You know, like, I think just even beyond what we've already seen, you will just have, like, you know, a battlefield of it's entirely humans doing a guerrilla warfare or whatever on one side, and then a team of robots where the cost of battle is purely financial for the other side. Right. And that is, like, to me, that's a terrifying idea. Mm. And I don't know how we get to robot versus robot warfare without going through there. I mm -hmm. don't see a path. Right. And to me, that path through, like, that's going to be a long period. Yeah. To me, I, I I think like it's not something that can just be overlooked. No, I, I I to me that makes it not worth going down at all yeah. because I think that that path is going to be very long, and maybe predictably is going to result in the extermination of all sort of you know groups of extermination or subjugation of all groups that aren't capable of mobilizing an autonomous you know right uh, you know army. Yeah, And the other thing, so beyond that, let's say we do get to this space where we're now robot versus robot battle. Now, I mean, this is maybe centuries into the future, sure. right? So we're really speculating. Here. Yeah. But the way I see it, that is a very fast paced. And that is a, it's like the friction of human costs are gone from this future system this mm -hmm. future you know this future balance between powers mm -hmm. and now it's just like all right basically we have one smaller state with a an autonomous army one larger state with an autonomous army the you know the robots battle each other until the smaller army is defeated mm. and now we just have a, an arsenal of autonomous weapons trained on this the people of this smaller state so so the people are still behind the people the are still behind it and let's say that we're in a state of diplomacy where we can say all right you win right mm -hmm. but how does that not lead to a single global order of whoever amasses the most autonomous weapons almost right. instantly mm -hmm. right like in terms of you know geologic time scale or human uh, societal time scale like I, I can see like over a couple of decades an autonomous army like that mm -hmm. really just completely like totalitarianism like we haven't seen before and maybe not necessarily totalitarianism it could be a democratic state that has this arsenal but that kind of singular concentration of power I think is really scary yeah but I would say that you know you can there's still strategy involved in strategies that you have to implant into these autonomous 
battle uh, these b- armies basically yeah and so it's not necessarily so you're saying a big country with uh, a lot of resources against a small country you know have this robot fight yeah say the small country comes up with a, a good strategy and implants a different algorithm or a different way to battle the bigger army you know what i mean i mean and that's uh you know, I, I, you would know more than I would, and yours definitely. I could see that happening, but it seems like that's how every uh, battle goes, every war right. goes. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's like, how come the United States isn't the number one global mm-hmm. totality? You know, how come we don't run the world mm-hmm. right now? Mm-hmm. And it's because there are different strategies, and you know, I think that there are other countries that have comparable resources. That that you know, and again, why isn't China the number one? You right. Know what I mean, why right. isn't there a totality? Like. So that's, you know, kind of my argument to what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. But yeah, I think, again, you probably know more about the machines and everything that it could yeah. potentially, yours definitely seems more likely. I mean, maybe uh, maybe I know more about the machines, but I don't think anyone really knows about how, you know, this sort of future balance of power with completely different military technology right. will go. This is complete um, uh, speculation. Yeah, it's really point. out there. <laughs> fun science fiction, if you will. <laughs> for sure, for sure. There are definitely a lot of really good science fiction books that explore these possibilities. Abilities. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think. I think the more important point, maybe, that I want to make is that yes, there is a possible future where we have robot on robot warfare, where humans don't get hurt. Mm-hmm. But I think the cost of getting there is insurmountably high right. in terms of human costs, and I'm really scared of what the path to get there will look like. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is the path that we're currently on. Yeah. You know, like currently, there's no major international agreement on this you know a number of countries have already deployed autonomous weapon systems against people israel currently is using a lot of autonomous weapon systems they have drones that are basically like suicide drones that are like autonomously targeting and flying into shit and blowing up they have automated sniper turrets that are firing like into Palestine. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's the these balances of power that are currently already being supported by the you know by developing autonomous weapon systems. That right. I think just further development is going to further exacerbate these imbalances of power. Right. So as fast as the technology is moving, we should have. Uh, regulations moving just as quickly yeah okay yeah that's yeah. what i would advocate yeah. <laughs> absolutely and i think absolutely. that's a solid position you know yeah what I mean? thank a, you yeah <laughs> i think that's good yeah. I, don't, I don't think i could ever even like you know, punch somebody in the face let alone deploy a weapon right <laughs> right uh, i think it's easier to deploy a weapon than to punch yeah. somebody in the face though it's a scary thing yeah it's true. um yeah yeah so i you know i definitely like and, and with that sort of panel and, like, workshop that we put together, bringing a bunch of people together, we were trying to sort of start a conversation there. And the conversation has been started in all sorts of different places and, you know, on they're podcasts. on podcasts for sure. Yeah. For sure. People are talking about it, um, but also, like, you know, in the U.N. and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, but it is moving really slowly uh, Mm -hmm. and certainly not keeping pace with the development and the deployment of these technologies and the existing uh, regulations that we have don't really speak very well to the new aspects of autonomy these things that we were talking about of should there be a human in the loop what are the Mm -hmm. risks if there's not a human in the loop what is the level of verification that we need or confidence that we will hit the target that we're actually aiming for Mm -hmm. that we need before we deploy these things it's like cluster bombs for example illegal under the geneva convention it's a war crime because we cannot guarantee their accuracy as much as we can with you know other types of missile like guided missile targeting systems right how do we you know translate those standards of you need to have a certain amount of verification and 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 reliability of your weapon system before you deploy it to autonomous weapon systems we just don't have the frameworks or the metrics or the uh the testing and validation systems in place to to really guarantee those things at all right now can you develop them yeah. Can you do it for us? I can't. You can't? I would try. Yeah. I would work on that. Can you do that for us? Obviously not alone. But <laughs> that's the thing is that these things are all completely developable. Right. Right? Sure. Like, we, we have the capability 
but we need to come together like in a UN type of format to decide to do this. Yeah, and, and so I mean that was a little bit of a joke, but also you like people like you are going to be the ones that need to push it. You know what I mean? That need to um, step into these fields, and yeah, you should do it. You just get get on it, dude. What are you doing here, <laughs> recording a podcast? You need to go out there and, and <laughs> position yourself to be somebody. I want you in front of the UN, dude. That's yeah, what yeah, I yeah. See. yeah. Oh, thanks, Steve. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. That's that's the dream, right? But yeah. until then. <laughs> I'll go on your podcast and I'll speak into all these beautiful people's ears and say, hey, don't build autonomous weapons, please. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll hope that does it for now. (laughs) Well, if that's the steps we could take personally, then I'm glad we're taking this. Um, I think this is a great place to cut it off, but I do want to thank you so much for uh, being uh, available and open to talk about this. Yeah, Steve. You are very knowledgeable and passionate. It was a pleasure to be in your podcast studio. This is a beautiful experience for me, so I I really appreciate it. Great. All right, well, I'm going to give you a little mic bump, and we'll uh, cut it off here. Nice.